local is it is the reason that the two restaurants we have exist. It may not have been the exact reason that it started, but it is definitely the reason that we exist now. Hey y'all, welcome to the Nuga Bell podcast, all about stories of the South, straight from the sources. I'm your host, Kate Robertson, and I'm based in the scenic city of Chattanooga, Tennessee. Join me and my guests as we talk about all things Chattanooga, life in the South, and beyond. Now pour yourself a cup of coffee or a glass of sweet tea and join us. We're so glad you're here. Hey y'all, welcome to the Nuga Bell podcast. I am all kinds of excited to be here with local restaurateurs, Eric and Amanda Neal of Easy Bistro, Main Street Beats, and the Scenic City Supper Club. I'm so excited to have y'all. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. All right, so tell me about your experiences growing up in your hometowns. Where are y'all from, and how did that bring you to Chattanooga? Uh, I grew up just north of here in a little town called Saudi Daisy, Tennessee. I left for college, worked in the big city of Manhattan, and then ended up moving back to Chattanooga in 2005, um, taking for granted its affordability and its natural beauty. And so when I moved back, it was just... I'd already met this guy, and so I knew um, I wanted to stay. What about you? Uh, so I was born in Texas, uh, raised in South Louisiana, uh, went to high school in Dallas, I went to co college in Austin, uh, and then I moved here uh, after I went to culinary school in Vail, Colorado. Um, so, you know, all, all over the South and ended up landing here, you know, straight out of culinary school. Uh, so growing up in Louisiana and having that exposure to the Gulf and all that seafood, like what was it, what was growing up in that environment? Like? It, was, it was amazing. It, you know, it's something you really take for granted at the end of the day that you know the the food and the camaraderie around food uh, that exists in the in the Gulf Coast and especially in Louisiana. You know, growing up there, you think everybody's like that, and it's not until you leave that you realize that that's not the way it is everywhere. So uh, it really made an impression upon me at an early age, you know, and was something that I, you know, always strive for in what we do is to take care of people and be hospitable and the way that my neighbors were when I was growing up. And seafood is such a huge part of your menu here at Easy Bistro. Where do you source that seafood from? We source it from all over. Um, you know, we're 600 miles from the coast, so we, we have our logistical challenges getting it here. But over the course of 13 years, we've form relationships and we have partners and purveyors that do a really good job of getting us the food uh, that we need uh, all on the whole, but specifically the seafood, um, oysters, fish, you name it, that we really want to feature in a restaurant like this. So y'all opened Easy Bistro in 2005. Can you tell us the story of how all of that kind of came to be? Uh, 2005. So we, you know, I moved here in the fall of 2000, met Amanda. Uh, very shortly thereafter, how did y'all um, meet? I was uh, I was managing a restaurant, uh, and I remember seeing her. You know, when I walked in for my interview, she was hosting. I was home for the summer hosting. Yeah, mm -hmm. and um, you know, from there we flirted and did all the things we weren't <laughs> supposed to do while working in a restaurant. And, uh, and then I know, moved. I almost got fired, and then you moved, and then uh, we I, kept in touch. We, we kept in touch, and then finally we got back together. You know, right, right around the time when both of us. But when Amanda moved back in 05, um, it was right around the time Easy was, was opening. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
So it was, it was, it was, you know, it was great. Uh, Chattanooga was almost 100% different in 2005 as, as it is now. I remember visiting when I lived in Atlanta, coming up here for the weekends, and I think 2005 was probably the last time I really spent any time here before I moved here in 2015. And I remember visiting and thinking like, the city's kind of weird. And then when I came back to visit, when I was moving back, I was like, this is not the Chattanooga I remember. You know, yeah. getting here in 2000, and you know, Amanda of course was raised close to here, the, the amount of change we've seen in the in the city, you know, and, and I mean that structurally and from the, you know the culture and the people as a whole, it's it's pretty amazing. Um, just the the amount of uh, new people who live here, the amount of work being done here, the uh, you know amount of businesses and you know commerce that happens here, it's pretty incredible. And how do you think the uh, food and culinary scene here plays a role in that? It's incredibly important. I mean, I think food and culinary scenes are a leading indicator of what's happening in a city. So, you know, as a city develops and grows up and its people develop and, and you know, find more cultural avenues, I think food is one of the first things that people really can explore. Uh, so it was really fun to be here at, you know, a very nascent stage of the food scene in Chattanooga and be able to see it grow as we were able to grow. And we've definitely grown together. I mean, we're able to do things now not the least of which is Main Street Meats, which were not possible in the early part of the 2000s. I mean, opening a butcher shop and charcuterie in, you know, 2000 to 2005 was would not have been possible. I mean, you know, you're talking about Main Street back then. It was a place you didn't go. And now it's where everybody wants to live and be. So it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's awesome. So I know that the space that Easy is in was once a Coca-Cola bottling mm -hmm. factory sure. or mm -hmm. space yeah. or whatever, and yeah. you got the opportunity to kind of redesign it and everything. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, so it is the world's original Coca-Cola bottling room. Um, and when we came in in 05, the space had been vacant for 12 years. Is that correct? 12 Almost years? 30 years. Oh my gosh, yeah. that's right, yeah. that's right. The Hamilton County Board of Education was here before we were, and we walked into the space, it was peach. It was, I mean, very 1980s decor, peach yeah. and blue. And then, but the space, you know, we fell in love with it because of the high ceilings and the moldings obviously are amazing, the windows are amazing. Um, but the space needed a lot of work, quite frankly. It used to have a mezzanine that was all rotting, basically, and had to be taken out um but my background is in interior design and so i you know worked on the space originally you know eric and i was 24 and eric was 26 we did not have the budget to do what we needed to do in the space we just wanted to open a restaurant it was our dream um so we i did some more upgrades and we repainted and redid everything um, three years after we were open in 08. And that's what the space looks like now. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting here and looking around and thinking like, I can't imagine this being peach and blue. I mean, it's a really mm -hmm. incredible Art Deco inspired space that mm -hmm. was built in the 30s. And, you know, Coke was here for a brief time because mm -hmm. they were growing so much. Mm -hmm. uh, but they left, you know, a really amazing venue for us to occupy. It just took yeah. us a little while, a long, a long while to get here. Well, so, it's such a beast of a space. I mean, the ceilings are twenty-three feet tall. You know, the um, the windows were factory windows. They were factory glass, so anytime it would rain, they would leak. 
you know, they weren't uh, double pane windows, you know, it was a lot, the floor is not, it's an old building, the floor is not level, I mean, it's just not, you know, it's like living in an old house, um, so, you know, we had to go through some growing pains in the beginning, and like I said, we didn't have a massive budget, we just knew we wanted to open a restaurant, um, so yeah, it was definitely a challenge, but a fun challenge. Mm -hmm. So we go from Easy Bistro and then Main Street Meats, and y'all assumed operations of that in 2014? 2014, yeah. 2014? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I started working on a consultant, as a consultant with them in th- 2013. Uh, and it was, you know, an existing butcher shop, a little lunch counter. And, you know, I had just fell in love with it. I mean, it, it has so much potential and it, it's such a, you know, unique idea and a necessary piece of the culinary scene in Chattanooga that I really wanted to be a part of it and you know grow it into what it, I think it is today yeah and now today it's got like an incredible cocktail menu and the food is just great and it's top-notch and I think that's definitely one of the most important like operations and establishments in thank the culinary you scene. it's it, it really is fun for for me to be able to have you know the a more um, you know seafood driven menu at easy and to have a you know almost entirely protein-driven menu at Main Street, yeah. you know, and to have the two kind of interplay off of each other is, is awesome. Mm-hmm. But they're two different you know sides of the cooking mind, right. and I think I think it's fun to share both of them. It's also really cool for me and coming from you know a retail background and um, high-end retail, which is what I did during college. It's fun to have a retail business again, you know. And I know it's a butcher shop, but still we sell like all kinds of local hot sauces and local honey and, you know, bread from the bakery next door. And it's just, I don't know, that part of it has been a lot of fun for me. Yeah. It kind of fits seamlessly into the fabric of Chattanooga and the restaurant scene, especially, Uh, you know, a big part of what we do is the USDA butcher shop that's attached to it and being able to have our products and sell them wholesale to other restaurants around Mm -hmm. Chattanooga is extremely gratifying. Yeah. To see the, our beef and our bacon and our pork. And, and salami represented on other people's menus is pretty cool. So where does uh, that meat and produce and all that come from? We, just like it easy, it, it, it's a, a complicated, hard process to buy local <laughs> product, right? You would think it'd be easy, but really it is, you know, it takes, it's just logistics. It's how do you get, you know, a bull that's standing in a field, you know, one day to a processor to us, you know, and do it in a way that satisfies the USDA and our desires for quality. So we work with local farmers. Uh, we've had relationships with lots of them and we've definitely narrowed our focus to people that we've gotten to work with for a longer period of time now and kind of fine-tuned our approach. Um, so we you know we have a, you know a, a group that we buy beef and pork from um, that's up towards North Carolina uh, and then uh, one of our local uh, beef provider is Lake Majestic out of Bridgeport, Alabama. That's, you know, the, the big animals and then, you know, eggs and uh, mm-hmm. chickens from Eden Thistle and, you know, uh, cheeses from Sequatchie Cove and, you know, you name it. Like, we're, we're continuing to spread a, a pretty wide net as far as what we're trying to purchase locally. And as Amanda was saying about the retail side of it, there's all these great food artisans that have started to kind of pop up over the last five to ten mm-hmm. years in Chattanooga and it, representing them and their products in our store is, is just as cool as us selling our products to other people to sell in their stores. So, you know, the the MSM part of our lives is kind of the tie that binds, you know, all of, all of us together. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Which is great. Um, and the last thing that y'all are involved, not the last thing, but <laughs> the other thing, the other big thing that y'all are involved in is the Scenic City Supper Club. Sure. So how yeah. did that kind of come to be? Scenic City Supper Club was really born out of a, you know, an idea that Amanda and I had about three and a half, four years ago uh, about how we can use the, tr- the, the work that we've been able to do uh, in the culinary scene in the Southeast, you know, traveling to food festivals, doing special dinners, events, things like that, where we get to experience um, kind of the camaraderie and the, the um, you know, the uniqueness of doing events with other people who are like-minded. So, you know, chefs that work like, like I do and restaurateurs that work like Amanda do and, and event coordinators that, that we kind of both straddle that line with. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all, you know, it was, it's really inspiring for us to go and work with other people because uh, yeah. you learn things and it, it tests your boundaries and it pushes you to, to be better and, and you know, it pushes it also you to just, be more creative. It, yeah. It all, and it also just is, was fun at the end of the day. Right. And so we wanted to have something in Chattanooga that could do that. And, and we absent, wanted to take the restaurant out of the equation. We didn't yeah. want to just have events at the restaurants. We yeah. wanted to do something that show it's that really shows it's, it's community, community and it shows off the city. So it's it's designed to you know foster the culinary scene and the hospitality scene of Chattanooga by bringing hospitality and culinary professionals together in a non-competitive way uh, and pairing them with a chef uh, from out of town. So we bring in you know chefs from all over the southeast and have them cook a dinner with people who work in restaurants here that you know may or may not have had the opportunity to travel like we have and do mm-hmm. do things like this. Yeah. Uh, it turned into something greater than I think either of us could ever have anticipated in the beginning. You know, the first one we did was limited to 50 tickets and the tickets went on sale at like 11 o'clock one day and man and I sat down to have lunch around noon and uh, I asked her to log in and see how many tickets we'd sold and she sold like 89 tickets at that point for a 50 seat dinner. <laughs> And, you know, we immediately we just said, oh, crap, right? What are we going to do now? <laughs> what so are we going to do? Like, turn, we didn't even yeah, think we turn, would sell 50 turn them tickets. All, turn them off, turn them off, because yeah. we've never done anything that sold like that. We've never done anything that, that really tapped into what people wanted to spend their money on. And it was very gratifying. I, mean, I had to call all the chefs up and say, hey, can we add another date? Yeah, we added so another the, night. The first version of Supper Club was actually two dates so that oh, we wow. could accommodate yeah. all the people who sold tickets to. Um, but we never had to limit the amount of tickets to anything we sold before. There's the first time for everything. Right, exactly. we, we learned the hard way that yeah. you know if you, you can only seat 50 people, you should probably only sell 50 tickets. <laughs> so y'all do these uh, quarterly, one per season? We've, we try to. We, well, we, we try to do them quarterly. We did have to, um, we didn't do a summer one this year because Eric was traveling a lot, you know, and then... Um, and I was doing, I did a supper club in Mississippi called Delta Supper Club, so right. I was actually the guest chef at... Yeah. A different we kind of club. joined so that, forces with Delta Supper Club that, this that, summer. That kind of took the the place of us doing yeah. one this summer. Um, they're amazing events to curate, and, and I and I really think of what we're doing is curating at this point. Um, we've done 11, 12 of them at this point. Uh, this this one in November will be thirteen. Okay. Wow. So you know, each one of them, you know, the two rules of Supper Club is that it has to be supper. So you have to sit at a table and eat, uh, <laughs> and it cannot be in a restaurant. Because uh, as Amanda said earlier, we wanted to take the restaurants out of the equation. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the thing that seem, people seem to get kind of wonky with when thinking about the hospitality industry. So if you're you know, going to a restaurant, you're going to worry about what you're supposed to wear and how it's supposed to be and who you're yeah. going to go with and what are you going to drink. Right. Um, but if you're going to dinner in a field, 
you're usually a little bit less concerned about what you're going to wear. Right. Um, in fact, to the point that we've sent emails to people that were coming beforehand and been like, you know, you have a mile and a half walk down a path to get to the table. Do not wear high heels or you're not going to make it, you know. Right, exactly. You know, bring, bring, bring a rain jacket, you know. Right, this is, this right. is not This is not a time to wear, you know, evening gowns. And people generally respond to it really well. They do. Um, it's been fun to, you know, to curate them. And we've done enough of them at this point that Amanda and I, uh, I think, are able to kind of step back and let our teams collectively work on them. And then we're very fortunate to have a very dedicated group of volunteers uh, in the hospitality industry all throughout Chattanooga who come to a lot of these events mm-hmm. and volunteer their time. Yeah. And it's to the point now where the people who have done five or six or ten of these events know what to do. And it's really nice to kind of take a step back and see people doing what they're good at doing, mm-hmm. uh, especially you know young chefs, old chefs. People that I've known for years and people just getting into the culinary business, having that kind of experience and gaining that kind of knowledge about, you know, how it is to, to, to throw a dinner in a field. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've challenged ourselves beyond words with putting them together and, yeah. you know, nearly broken our bodies in, in, in many mm-hmm. ways. But it's all been very worthwhile at the end of the day. You know, this is not something we do for financial gain. It's something we do for, you know, overall, you know, gain to the community. Um, we fight just like every restaurateur fights, you know, keeping employees. And one of the things that we've, you know, fought for years is really good cooks and really good servers and bartenders and managers leaving to go to another city. And if we can keep them here, you know, because they met somebody at a supper club, I'd so much rather that talent stay in town than go to, Atlanta, go to or Atlanta or, Atlanta or, or Chicago else. or I mean, Nashville. Right? I'm not mad at those cities. They're great cities. I right. just like I just like the people who work here to stay in Chattanooga. I mean, I think I think we Agreed. all need to be, brought, <laughs> yeah. to be risen up like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you meant there's a supper club coming up November fourth. November fourth. Yes. Um, can you give us a little preview or sneak peek about what the menu will be, or is that kind of a secret until? Well, the menu is still to be determined. Okay. So yeah. my my job in these now is to bring chefs together in a way uh, kind of give them some guideposts to work between and say go do what you want to do yeah um, and then curate that meal from three to four different chefs into something that makes sense okay so you know i've i've personally cooked at probably four or five of the supper clubs and i i take great enjoyment out of helping other people put menus together put dishes together that will work in that kind of setting mm-hmm. um, that's that's my job and then yeah you're um, well, I mean, I can tell you that the chef is Cassidy Dabney, and she is the chef from the barn at Blackberry Farm. Awesome. Which we're super stoked to have her. I mean, she was a James Beard nominee this year. Um, and then we're partnering for the first time ever with the Southern Foodways Alliance. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so we're super happy about that. And Lodge Cast Iron. Uh, and Lodge Cast Iron. <laughs> um, so, you know, we'll, we'll release more details soon, but we, we had to get her schedule lined out before we could, you know, decide on a date. Uh, they're always on a Sunday. Um, so yeah, November 4th is the next one and we're super excited to have her and she'll probably do, um, one to two courses and then we'll have local chefs fill in with other, other items. So four course, five course, three course. Usually it's four with hors d'oeuvre and then usually we have, you know, um, a featured bartender that will do a few cocktails and then we'll also have wine and beer. 
Um, but the menu really depends on where the location is. You know, okay. like Eric was saying, like, uh, like for example, the one that we did last summer at Lula Lake, you know, we went up and built an actual fire pit for the chefs to cook on. Um, so it really just depends on the location and that kind of steers the menu in a certain direction. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. You know, trying to do, you know, intricate alamanu platings in the middle of an old factory is not going to happen, you know? <laughs> right, there right. There's no power and no running water. So, you know, we're, we're definitely on the gorilla, you know, cookery side of things. We've done a lot of open fire and um, used a lot of room temperature and cold ingredients to, to pull it off. But it, it, it ultimately, we pull it off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Oh, I'm so excited. I hope I'll be able to attend uh, the one in November. I haven't been to one yet. So I'm really well, we'd love to have you join yes, us. Yes, yeah. we'd love to have you join us. I will clear my calendar and make sure I can come. Okay. <laughs> um, so now we're going to put up my jar. Okay. If you've been listening to the podcast, you know what the jar is. Uh, but for new listeners, this is my beautiful mason jar filled with colorful pieces of paper with all kinds of questions. And we'll each draw a couple and talk about them. And we can answer each other's questions. Okay. So Perfect. we'll do... Sounds like a plan. I'll do one. The one show I could binge watch over and over. Ooh. Friends, 1,000%. Go ahead. <laughs> Mine's The Office. <laughs> yeah, I love The Office. Yeah, it's so hysterical. Um, oh, God. I mean, I really like Shameless. I haven't seen that one yet. Yeah. Oh, it's great! It's, it's yeah, it's it's pretty awesome. I is mean, that on Netflix? It's on. Uh, it is so on Netflix. The older seasons on, are yeah, on Netflix, it, 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 right? Netflix. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'll have to check that out. I haven't yeah. seen that one yet. Yeah. I never got into The Office for some reason. Oh, I just I have a really dry sense of humor, so I enjoy that. And I used to have an office job, <laughs> and it really does kind of like hit home, you oh, know? Really? Yeah. It's just, I don't know. I it's might funny. have to give it another chance. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing once you yeah. get into it. <laughs> All right. So for y'all, uh, it says, my ideal meat and three plate is. <gasps> okay, you go first. Me? Yeah. Oh, my ideal meat and three is. Yeah, what's your ideal meat and three? Uh, fried chicken, sliced tomatoes, macaroni and cheese, and green beans. Oh my gosh, that's... Like, raw tomatoes or fried green tomatoes? Raw tomatoes. Raw, ripe, summer red tomatoes with salt and pepper. Okay. How are you? Tomatoes are the one southern food that... Well, they're not even a southern food, but they're the one thing I just can't stomach. Really? I know, it's real weird, but I just... They're very high in acid, so... Yeah. I don't know what it is, but I just can't do it. It's all right. That's okay. You can can serve something out in that dinner. Yeah. I like the fried chicken and the mac and cheese. What'd you say the other one? Green beans. Green beans. I would go probably some type of like stewed apples. Okay. (gasps) Interesting. Yeah. The only thing I would add on because I do like your pick of like the fried chicken, macaroni and cheese, green beans. It's pretty standard. Yeah. I would add on like banana pudding or something, some sort of dessert. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) That maybe even as like a substitute to one of the sides. Yeah, yeah. There you go. I love banana pudding. Yeah. Definitely. Okay, so next question. Your favorite book you read in school? Jeez. I know. That's a hard that's a hard decision to make. I have a lot of favorite books. Um I mean this was that it was laborious as all get out, but I feel like I've taken lessons from it for the entirety of my life is Don Quixote. Oh wow! Yeah, I never read that one. 
it's oh, it's it was thick and deep and <laughs> took a long time to get through it but i had an amazing teacher who you know basically walked us through the pages of cervantes and you know the the lessons that you're able to take from that you know about life are pretty impressive mm-hmm. yeah i'll have to add that to my list yeah Mine's nerdy. I mean, mine was definitely a college book. It was Minding the Store um, by Stanley Marcus because, and it was the year that Neiman Marcus had turned 100 years old. Oh, okay. And it was all about customer service and how they had built that store from the ground up. Out of, you know, it's based out of Dallas, Texas. And it was just a really interesting read about how they handle customer service and how they're still known for it to this day. But yeah, I mean, mine's just kind of like a nerdy retail book. Yeah. <laughs> My two favorites were 1984 by George Orwell, yeah. nice. which is an odd one to say these days, but 1984 by George Orwell, and I was a Shakespeare nerd, so uh, Hamlet, King Lear, Macbeth, all the tragedies. <laughs> nice. That's perfect. I love yeah, Shakespeare. Yeah, that's great. And then in eighth grade, we read To Kill a Mockingbird, oh, yeah. and... I had, like, my 8th grade English teacher was just the spawn of the devil. And I feel bad for saying that I hated To Kill a Mockingbird, but I've decided I'm going to give it another chance. Yeah. I'm going to go out as, and buy it as and you well should, it, yes. And I'm yeah, going to give should. it another chance. Yeah, yeah. yeah give it it's a chance. It's amazing, though. Yeah. yeah. Let's all do one more each. Okay, sure. A piece of wisdom I always keep with me is... Mm. So this goes back to a fortune cookie that I got in college. And it said, always remember where you were going and never forget where you've been. I love Perfect. that. Yeah. And that's, good... that's like really profound for a fortune cookie. Yeah. Because usually they're just like, good luck is coming your way. And I got that one and was like, wow. Wow, yeah. And that's... I wrapped it in scotch tape and I still have it in my jewelry box at home. That's awesome. Nice. I like that. What about you? You want me to go first? Uh, sure. I mean, I've, I know what mine is. But, um, so my grandfather used to have this saying, you know, don't ever think that you're you're different than anybody else because everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time. And I know that's probably not an original saying. You know, I'm sure he got that from someone. But that's always stuck with me because I feel like, you know, we are all equal, you know, on the basic level yeah and we all want to be loved we all want to be happy we all want you know we all go through different things at different stages in life and so that's just that's just always stuck with me Mm -hmm. i like that a lot yeah uh mine comes through my mom via john lennon uh which is a quote from him that's where he says that life is what happens while you're busy making other plans yes yeah it's a good one Um, such a good one no matter where you are in life it is an absolute truism it's very easy to miss everything happening around you at the moment while you're doing other things. So mm-hmm. that's, you know, mm-hmm. it, it always stick with me. That's another yeah. thing I've been realizing in my own life lately. So funny that you should mention that one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. What have y'all got? What makes Chattanooga feel like home? It's for you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think I... For me, I mean, I'll go to one specific example, and it really hit me, and maybe that's because I was super emotional, but when we had, when our son was born, Cade, um, our neighbors, and we live on the south side, our neighbors cooked for us for a month straight. 
Like every day someone would show up with, I mean, I remember Peggy Petrie and that roast chicken she made. We were like, we ate that for like three days. It was like amazing. <laughs> it was so good. It was so good. But our neighbors just, you know, whether it was lasagna or, you know, they just, I cannot get over, you know, their, um, their kindness. And so that really made us feel so at home in the South Side. And it really just gave me this sense of like, oh, wow, like our neighbors are such good people. Yeah. Um, for me, you know, I've lived a lot of places in my life, but this is far and away the longest time I've ever spent in one place. And, you know, it's funny when you open restaurants and things like that, that, you know, you, you can't move anymore. These are not mobile creatures. But I feel like it's home because this is where, you know, I've certainly been able to establish my life. In, in no small part is that due to you know, the fact that my family is here, Amanda and Kate. Um, but I also feel like um, I have a great group of friends mm-hmm. and the community has, you know, very willingly accepted what we've done as part of its own. So to be, you know, not from here technically, but to have established roots here as deep as we have, or I have, since, since I'm not from here, and be accepted in that way is, is pretty awesome. And that, that's very, very much my I am also a Chattanooga transplant. I moved here in 2015, and I don't hate anyone, but I have not met a single person in Chattanooga that I have disliked. That's Everyone's awesome. just, like, so nice and welcoming. I mean, yeah. I remember when my mom and I came here shopping for an apartment, and just the lady at the mall where we went to get dinner was mm-hmm. just so nice and welcoming. And just from day one, I've just been like, yeah, this is going to feel like home in no time. Yeah. yeah. And well, well put. I've yeah. moved a lot myself, and nowhere I've lived has felt as much of home as Chattanooga has. Good. And I will That's forever awesome. sing those praises. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you all so much for playing my little game with me. Oh, of course. Absolutely. Really thank cool. you. Yeah. That's a good, thank that's a great you. game. I love it. All right, and if you have any questions or conversation topics you'd like to hear on the jar, leave me a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast, and I'll add it to the jar. Cool. Moving on to the second half of the show. Cool. Um, one of the things that I've noticed a lot as I've eaten at Easy Bistro and Main Street Meats and just, like, learned more and more about like how y'all do business and your food and everything is that y'all have a real appreciation for like where food comes from and like the presentation and really making food into art. Can y'all talk a little bit about that? I feel very fortunate in, in that my culinary career has spanned what I would say are some really important decades of restaurant growth, culinary growth, chef growth, um, and, and so on. So, you know, I started cooking in the late 90s when you know the idea of the celebrity chef had just barely been born um and so i got to see you know that kind of nascent idea but it was still kind of a blue collar job i mean you know chefs weren't looked up as to as these you know bastions of creativity or thought of as artists they were you know not really there um but i loved doing it Uh, and i got to work at some great restaurants and you know learn about seasonality you know, uh, seasonality was the, the biggest thing that we had going, or the biggest uh, trend that we had back in the late 90s was that. And it was organic, and then it was heirloom, and then it became local. Um, local didn't even really get to the equation until 
not, you know, the mid part of the first decade, you know, 2005, 2006, I mean, local wasn't, I mean, it was a kind of a thing, but not really a big thing. Mm-hmm. So I think now, you know, 2018, we're looking back and thinking that local food and the local food movement has been around forever. It's been around for like 10 years, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's not, this is not aged by any means and it's not fully defined by any means. So as a, as a cook, getting to see the transition from canned foods and frozen foods to fresh fruits and vegetables that were only avail- available seasonally and then grown properly from or- organic and heirloom seeds and then from local farmers to support a local economy. I feel like I've been very fortunate to exist in that time frame. So to say it's important to me is, is an understatement. To understand that, it's, almost, it's kind of like you have to go back and think historically about why local is important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now it's such a part of our lives uh, in everything that we do from, you know, writing menus to, you know, looking at the, the, the overall uh, feel of the restaurant, where, where we're sourcing our plates from, our linens, our glassware, yeah, everything. You, know, you, you name it, juices, coffees, like all of that now has to do so much with local, who builds our tables, who makes our chairs, who, you know, mm-hmm curates our music lists and things like mm-hmm. that. I mean, it's all really important that it's, you know, of this locality. So the importance of it is hard to, you know, understate. It is the thing that we do. Um, as far as taking it and putting it onto a plate, like, you know, local produce or, or you know, a cow that was raised 30 miles from here, I feel like it's our jobs to respect the process. And that if we if we don't, we're really doing a disservice to our guests by not taking that perfectly ripe red tomato in the summertime and showcase showcasing it as appropriately as we should. Now we get to do fun things and be artistic and put it on plates and be you know as creative as we want to, but we've kind of given ourselves the room to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and our guests, going back, you know, talking about how long we've been here and the rapport we have with our guests, our guests are now able or very willing to let us do that so in the beginning before local was really important because he's been here for 13 years we had to do things a little more normal so to speak we we didn't Mm -hmm. have that much freedom and so now as we've as we've earned that trust with our guests we get to do all the stuff we want to do Mm -hmm. they'll tell us when they don't like it (laughs) we certainly make mistakes all the time i mean i think we're defined by our mistakes as much as our successes in, in the culinary world but local is it is the reason that the two restaurants we have exist it may not have been the exact reason that it started but we've definitely especially easy but it is definitely the reason that we exist now i remember i think uh either last i think it was sometime last fall but i saw going back to the seasonality i saw on i think y'all's was like instagram or facebook one of the like seasonal dessert features and i was like oh my gosh i have to go get that and i guess like my work schedule didn't allow for me to come for a few days but by the time i came and i asked for it they were like no that's out of season we've got something new and i'm like oh seasonality's fast guys yeah <laughs> we we get to play with that i mean it, you yeah. know it, and it again our guests are able to work with us in that way and are accepting of the fact that we don't have strawberry shortcake in you know in December because we're not going to have it you know yes we can get strawberries but they're not going to be the same Um, that idea was was radical 
radical when I started cooking that you couldn't get a strawberry or you couldn't have a ripe strawberry all the time. Um, now people accept it. Yeah. And so the, you know, the, the change that I've been able to experience, you know, amongst myself, amongst the cooks that I've worked with, amongst the people that I've served, the servers we worked with, is massive. Um, I can only imagine what it's going to be like in 20 years when everybody who's growing up now knowing about seasonality and locality and you know the healthfulness of that kind of food grows up and starts doing their own thing that's going to be a really cool thing to see yeah so going into the fall we've got all sorts of amazing fall flavors and seasonal fruits and veggies coming out do you have any that you're particularly excited to use again i never rush into fall um it's, <laughs> and it's and it's only because summer in the south seems to linger more and more the older I get. So, you know, last year I remember it was, you know, like, you know, the third week in October and it was still hot. It was outside. 90 degrees outside right. and I still had farmers showing up at the back with tomatoes begging me to buy them. And, you know, it's because the weather was there and that, you know, the, their last rotations of tomatoes were really, really good. And so we're buying them, we're putting them on the menu, we're canning them. And I remember finally thinking, man, I'm kind of tired of tomatoes at this point, you know. I'm ready for fall. Um, so I always look forward to it. Fall is, is one of my favorite seasons. I think where we are in the South, it's one of the most ephemeral. Like it's it's here really fast and gone really fast. So typically what we'll do with some of our farmers, and we've already started talking to them about it, is when they're growing pumpkins and gourds and squashes and winter squashes and things like that, we'll get them to put a big giant lot of stuff together for us. And then usually over the course of one or two weeks in the middle of October, we just buy all of it. So we'll put away 30, 40, 50 cases of winter squash. Oh, wow. And then use it throughout the rest of November, December, and January. And then there's a point in January where we, we kind of have run through it and we're all really sad. <laughs> yeah. And realize that the bounty of fall is over. <laughs> yeah. And we still have two or three months to go until we get to spring. And that's when we start getting creative and pulling things that we've preserved from the summer out. And that's when the canned tomatoes and the pickled ramps and the, you know, chow chow and stuff like that comes comes off the yeah. off the shelf and we start using it again. And that's, you know, it, it, you you think to yourself in the summer that nothing could taste better than a ripe tomato or, you know, the, the fresh peppers coming, you know, from the farmers. And then when you get to, you know, February and you pop a jar of chow chow and it smells like summer and you takes you right back there, but it's a different because it's pickled and it's got a little bit of different essence to it. It's really cool. It's got a little bit of that tang to it. Yeah. Right. Um, another thing you said earlier, and, and I think one of the like articles or bios I read about you, you had something about food is meant to be destroyed. So going back <laughs> to talking about like food is an art, and I've had dishes like here and elsewhere that they're just so pretty that I almost feel bad eating them, but it's food. You're supposed to eat it. Right. Right. So as in the world of plating, like you're talking about, and what presentation, what we do, I feel very fortunate to be. In a, in a media, an art media, that is, again, ephemeral, right? It, it's meant to be destroyed because it's food. You know, not many artists get to paint, you know, 100 pictures a day, right? Or take, you know, 100 photographs a day and really work that well mm -hmm. with them. As a line cook, you know, if you're really into it, you get to plate 100 different dishes a day, times five days a week mm -hmm. or six days a week or seven days a week, depending on how you're working these days. And, you know, you get that repetition. And so you can really des develop a style and a, an aesthetic individually. And I really want everybody working in the kitchen to be able to do that. 
So we're not strict on how something looks. We just make sure it looks good because mm-hmm. um, yeah. each cook has their own individual style. But it is, a, you know, it is meant to be destroyed. Like yeah. we get to do it over and over. We and also over don't want to be pretentious about it. I mean, we have yeah. beautiful salmon collars earlier this year, and you know, some of our guests were like, "Are we supposed to pick this up and eat it with your hands, or eat it with our hands?" And I'm like, "Pick it up and eat it with your hands." You <laughs> yeah. know, yeah. like it's food. You know, it's, it, it is meant yeah. to be destroyed. Yeah, pretend you were really hungry and you needed to eat. What would you right, do? Right, <laughs> right. I remember very specifically last year for Restaurant Week, y'all did fried squash blossoms. Uh-huh. And I had never had, I didn't even know squash had blossoms. <laughs> and That's good. I had those and whatever they came with. And I remember just like standing over it and just taking so many pictures of it. Because <laughs> yeah. it was so beautiful. Yeah. My friends and I were with, were like, Kate, hurry up. We want to devour this. And uh, I tasted one. I was like, I don't really know, like, how this is supposed to taste, but I took a bite of it and was like, oh, my goodness. So, yeah, yeah, think about doing fried squash blossoms again. (laughs) You definitely should. We we, we did some this spring. Uh, Early early summer. Early summer, yeah. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's quick. It's it's here and gone. Uh, But they'll be back again next year. Oh, good. I'm so mad at myself. That's all right. Um... So, again, going back to something we touched on earlier with the, um, I've noticed, like, so many seasonal cocktails here, like, again, going back to Restaurant Week last year, the cocktail I had, I don't remember what it was called, but it was, like, rum and melon mm-hmm. and something else. So it was, like, last day in Florida or, like, last oh, day yeah, in Oh, yeah, last day in Florida. So, yeah, yeah, that was it. And that was actually named after an office at this boat. Really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is where we pull cocktail maze from. <laughs> not, not a bad way to do it, though. Yeah. Um, you look at uh, old episodes of The Office, uh, Ramon's songs, nice. that yeah. kind of stuff, you know. Lots of music yeah, references. Yeah, lots of music references. Inspirations everywhere. Yeah. Um, but can we talk a little bit about, like, uh, workshopping those cocktails mm-hmm. and how y'all, like, put together your cocktail programs? So... We actually workshopped cocktails yeah, today right. at Mainstream Meats. <laughs> really, we just did this. So <laughs> both, both restaurants run seasonal menus, so, you know, they're, they're three months. Uh, and then we have, you know, we have great bar staffs at both places and, you know, we'll get a menu done, launch it. And then 30 days later, we're kind of like, all right, well, let's start, let's start thinking about some ideas for the next one. And so, you know, we spend another 30, 45 days kind of thinking about it, playing with stuff while we're working the current list. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, about 20 days before the seasons change, we, we sit down with the staff at both places and you know, taste everybody's ideas and talk about what, we, what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the interplay with the kitchen at both places is great because with seasonality, you know, there's going to yeah. be different fruits or juices or products that are available that go well in the bar. And we're also paying attention to, you know, overall flavors that are going to be on the menu. Um, what would go well with winter squash? What would go well with, uh, you know, the, the heavier food of winter or the lighter food of summer? Um, so we're trying to balance, you know, te- texture with texture there. And just, you know, really trying to keep uh, a fresh twist on both of the lists um, and so it, it's become routine for us but it's a really fun routine mm-hmm. uh, and, and it's yeah. you know it is very um, awesome on my part to see young bartenders and you know even servers pitch ideas to the bartender the head bartender that you can then you know kind of amalgamate all this information and bring it to us mm-hmm. and then we sit down and just come up with everything that we like I mean that's, that's mm-hmm. the fun part we try that. to narrow down the list and keep yeah. it smaller in the past we've had really large cocktail menus and we don't really like to do more than eight cocktails at a time yeah like today we tasted 13 that had been workshopped and we narrowed it down to eight yeah at mainstream yeah. meats um we'll probably do the same here at easy yeah. 
Um, but like the ones that we tasted today, you know, pomegranate and pumpkin, pumpkin. and yeah. you know, all kinds of different fall flavors. You know, um, apples, apple cider. Right, a no. lot of apples. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's the kitchen and the bar working together. Yeah. Pomegranate's one that I always forget about as a fall flavor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's a little bit underrated, but I love it. Yeah. Uh, it's, oh, yeah. It's definitely underrated in the South. In the South. Yeah. yeah. There are parts of the world that's definitely not underrated. <laughs> well, it, yeah. yeah. That's a good, good call out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's an amazing play for I mean, you know, it, being able to work with the culinary or, 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 you know, in the bar is awesome because it's bitter mm-hmm. and, and tangy all at the same time. Like yeah. right now, in our, we just changed our rosé because we ran out of um, peach syrup because peaches were gone. So we just did, we had the last of our figs in season that we got from a, a local person that just has massive fig trees in their yard. Yeah. Um, and so now we have fig syrup in our frisé right now. And so that'll probably run out this week and then, you know, we'll change it to something else or, or maybe we'll take it off the menu for the fall. But we have the luxury of, because we print our own menus in-house, we have the luxury of changing those things more frequently. Yeah, every day. That's phenomenal. I got on a big rosé kick this summer. Yeah. Good. Why not? Why not? Good. Me too. I kept like five bottles of it at home. Yeah. One of the best ones. Um, I think that's about all I have to talk about. Is there anything that we haven't covered that y'all wanted to talk about? No, I mean, I really think we hit we hit a lot of the, the hot spots. I mean, I think that we're both super happy to have restaurants in Chattanooga. We could have landed. We looked at New York. We looked at Nashville. We looked at Atlanta. We, I mean, we looked in Charleston, Savannah. Um, but we're we're just really really thankful for everyone's support, and I think it's important that you know that we say that. Uh, you know, I, I'm tickled to be here always, and you know, I love where the city's going. Uh, I always encourage people in Chattanooga to support local, you know, and vote with your dollars. Yeah. I mean, you know, go go spend the money where the people who live here are, are mm-hmm. working and doing their things. Do Don't not eat, do yeah. not eat at chains. Yeah. <laughs> Don't have to tell Chattanoogans that twice. Yeah, exactly. Yep, yep. But that's that's a new thing. I mean, it was it hasn't always been that way. So it's really nice to see that swing. Um, but yeah, vote with your dollars. Go where you want to go. Uh, so where can we follow y'all in Easy Bistro and make sure meets on the internet? So Supper Club, uh, we have sceniccitysupperclub.com, easybistro.com, mainstreetmeetschat.com. We're super active on Instagram, super active on Facebook. Um, so yeah, just follow us on social media and you'll catch everything. And then nuga.com partners with us for a lot of our Scenic City Supper Club dinners, so they'll probably announce the ticket date soon. Yeah. Awesome. I will link all those in the show notes for the episode. Thank awesome. You. Thank you. Thank you all so much for joining me. This has been an absolute pleasure talking with y'all. We very much enjoyed it. Thank you yes. for coming. Thank yeah. you so much. This has been another episode of the Nuga Bell podcast. Thank y'all so much for listening.